Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The salient refrain of Psalm 119, verse 105, challenges each of us to allow the Word of God to ever be the light to our path, that which leads, guides, and directs us, and moves us in the direction that God would have us to go, of course, through the character of this life. As was mentioned earlier in the announcements, we certainly are thankful that we've each been granted the opportunity to assemble this morning. For many who are sick are in a position to not be able to enjoy that. We certainly hope that they soon will enjoy an improvement and a betterment in their health and that many of those on that list will be able to come back and be with us here at our services. The glory of the church is a subject that certainly I think would be a fair one for us to give some interesting consideration to, a subject that truly is magnificent in many ways but also a subject that has practical importance for you and me on a daily basis. How do we view the precious church, the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Here's some initial thoughts that I would wish us to consider. And in fairness, I would hope that this will turn out to be a brief series of lessons actually. But as we begin to look at the glory of the church, might we begin with these interesting statements. I thought I would use some quotes actually along the way to at least shed some reasons to why I chose this particular topic as one for us to consider. In fact, as you'll notice, as we can see there, the church, as not only seen by some, but as some would even proclaim it, is really enduring some difficult times. In the mind of many people, the church is irrelevant. It's immaterial. It doesn't really matter that much. For them, the church is really just something that one does no more or less than other kinds of organizations. You go to a Lions Club meeting once a month. We'll just go to church every now and then. For others, the church is really something that really holds no special significance or importance at all. In fact, look at just a few of these quotations. I quote by one particular writer. The modern American church has, for the most part, become irrelevant. In the opinion and in the writing of this particular writer, the church for him is immaterial. It is irrelevant. It really doesn't matter that much. As if that isn't enough, consider this next quotation. It, a bit lengthier, but nonetheless, it's one that is somewhat shocking and startling. Churches used to be respected as lighthouses in communities, places free from the jaundiced juxtaposition of political correctness and avarice. Today's churches are filled with both. Where once churches stood as guardians of truth, they have now become progenitors of error. Where once preachers stood in the similitude of Elijah and John the Baptist, they now grovel in the image of Joel Osteen and Rick Warren. Sunday schools were once bastions of Bible teaching. Today, they are glorified coffee shops and playgrounds. It's easy to see, based on this observation, and let me quickly point out, this wasn't a Church of Christ person or preacher that wrote that. This was a person who just looked upon the landscape of modern religion and said, that's what I see. Places where once the Bible was opened and thus saith the Lord was what was proclaimed, and now it's turned into a place to eat donuts and drink coffee on Sunday morning, at least for many. In other places, they recognized once preachers stood with firmness and conviction and preached what the Word of God had to say, and now 
they preach what the audience wants to hear under the banner of Joel Osteen and Rick Warren and a host of others. Maybe you've read some of their books, by the way. The bookstores are filled with them. You see their picture on the front flap of the book. And these preachers sell millions of copies of these books in which they preach a message that so often sounds so good. But there's only one problem, and of course that's the Word of God's absent from it. Look at where then the church has become. What is it that we can say about the church? The New Testament passage that was read a moment ago, Ephesians 3.21, loudly shouted the refrain, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. It's to be noted that the inspired apostle affirmed that if we're going to serve God, it must be done through the nature and channel of the church and through, of course, the auspices of authority of Christ. And it is unto God through that channel glory is to be brought. That leads us to see then that apart from a proper worship in the church and apart from a proper realization of the church, there will be no glory directed to God. Is the church important? Is it vital? Is it relevant? Absolutely. It's sad then to hear comments to where those who think the church is unimportant and insignificant and immaterial and irrelevant. Perhaps one more quotation and then we'll use these to move into some of the latter parts of our worship. As you give thought to this next quotation, it too is a bit lengthier, but it highlights a very special point. After reading it, I will use it, in fact, to direct our attention to one of the thoughts, and then we'll turn to the Bible and listen to what the Bible says with respect to some of these. And I quote, There are small churches, mid-sized churches, and big churches. There are Bible study groups, Sunday school groups, and prayer groups. There are big denominations, little denominations, and independent churches. There are mainline churches, evangelical churches, and fundamentalist churches. There are Calvinists and Armenians. There are Saturday Sabbatarians, Sunday Sabbatarians, and non-literal Sabbatarians. There are Pentecostals, Charismatics, Semi-Charismatics, and Cessationists. There are Premillennialists, Postmillennialists, Amillennialists. The list of permutations goes on and on. Please note the part in emphasis, if I might. The unity of the body of Christ obviously does not lie in such things. Rather, the unity of the body of Christ lies in Christ Himself. Only in Christ are we brought into the fellowship of the saints. This person has written, and you might notice one very clear message he intended to bring. It doesn't matter, he said what kind of religious organization to which you belong. Call yourself a Sabbatarian if you like. Call yourself a post-millennialist if you like. In his words, it does not matter so long as one has a tie to Christ at the bottom. I would ask that we call that into question this morning and ask, in fact, can there be any glory in the church as long as that is the viewpoint? Can it be that one can rightfully, properly, and rightly bring glory into God when this is the viewpoint that one holds? Let's open now the Word of God, using perhaps the thoughts contained in that Word to in fact shed light on all of these concepts that we've looked at in these two quotations. You'll remember that we have in fact been challenged this morning. 
You and I obviously want to be right with God or we wouldn't have come to this place this morning. We obviously want to offer a respectable and correct worship to Him. But in light of all of these, this gentleman has wrote, it really doesn't matter where you attend. Let's see if he's right. The question before us this morning is this one. How many churches are there? We will seek to ask that very openly and very directly. It's not our desire, of course, to do so in a manner using what we've just read. For in the mind of this particular person to whom we just quoted, there perhaps would be some strange and odd and amazingly large answers. Let's begin by asking, how many churches are there? May I point out, this is a very appropriate question. Maybe you and I have known of individuals who in earnestness and in honesty have asked it. In fact, may I invite us to at least picture a situation. Suppose there was an individual who perhaps some circumstances had happened in his or her life. Maybe a death had occurred. Maybe something else had begun him or her to think seriously about religion. So on one particular morning, he gets up, proceeds to work, and he starts taking note of the church buildings by which he passes on the way to work. And he counts them. And when he arrives at his place of work, I passed ten church buildings on my way. But it's interesting. One was Baptist. One was Methodist. One was a Church of Christ. One was a Presbyterian. One was Church of Christ Scientist. And he begins to wonder, is one of them as good as another? Does it matter which one I perhaps desire to place my membership with and work with? Does it matter? I would submit to you that's the very question in parallel fashion that we are asking. How many churches are there? Let me, in fact, share a statistic as we begin. The World Christian Encyclopedia is a publication that frankly isn't published all that often. In fact, the second edition was published in the year 2001. So that's now 10 years ago, admittedly. But in that particular publication, the author, whose name is Dr. Barrett, attempted to set forth not only the characteristics of the various religious organizations upon earth, but also to tally the membership as well as the nature of growth in each of them. In the 2001 publication, this is the statistic we encounter. According to his statistical reckoning in which he carefully noted all seven continents and all of those in great detail, there are 33,830 Christian denominations as of 10 years ago. Let me repeat that. 33,830. All of which who claim to follow the same book. All of which who claim to follow the same Lord. All of which who claim to be right in the sight of God. All of which claim to thus be the one that will allow its adherents to make their way to heaven. 33,830. And shockingly enough, I strongly suspect that number is now far more than that. Because in that same publication, he noted that that number on average rises by 10 every month. Isn't that amazing? Now might we ask the same question again. Of those 33,000 and somewhat more different Christian denominations... Does it matter which one one's a member of? Is it irrelevant and immaterial in essence? Which one? Does it really matter? I think it's time we let God speak to some of this. 
because we shall find not only that it matters for our life here upon earth, it of course matters from the perspective of eternity. I would ask you to take note. What we've basically described so far is sheer confusion. It's no wonder that person that we described who had made his way to work and then he wants to know which church is the right one, no wonder that poor person's confused. No wonder that poor person's in a state of wonderment as he asks, does it matter which one of these I attend? Are they all right in God's sight? May we begin looking at some of these passages. In John the 17th chapter, verses 20 and 21, the Son of God Himself on the night prior to His crucifixion, a mere hours away, here He was in the shadow of the cross as He prayed in Gethsemane that night. In verses 20 and 21, He said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for all of them also which shall believe on Me through their word, that they all may be one, as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. With a proverbial tear streaming down the face of our lovely Son of God that night, He prayed that all of those that would believe upon Him would be one. That there would be a unity characteristic of their nature, a unity characteristic of who they were and what they would uphold and the way in which they would conduct themselves. Unity. We notice, furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10, as Paul addressed this letter to the church in Corinth, I would ask, and we shall of course make application in a moment, but please note with me how that it addresses so clearly and powerfully the subject of what we've raised so far today. I beseech you therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Here was Paul addressing a congregation who upon that occasion, quite frankly, was exhibiting division. There were those who claimed, I am of Paul, others, I am of Cephas, others, I am of Apollos. It was Paul in that very context who said, Gentlemen and brethren, I beseech you that you all speak the same thing. No divisions among you. Perfectly joined together, same mind, same judgment. Now might we make application of that to our day? We just listed a moment ago in excess of 33,000 organizations who all claim to follow the Lord and who claim to follow the same pattern and who claim to in fact be right and approved and justified in God's sight. Question, are they unified? We readily appreciate, do we not, that on so many occasions that which each of these bodies claims is actually contradictory to one another. And it's mutually exclusive. This organization claims you have to be baptized to be saved. That one said, no you don't. It doesn't matter. Now can both of them be right? Obviously, logically, they cannot both be right. Furthermore, this organization says it doesn't matter if you use mechanical instruments and music and worship. This one says it doesn't matter. Can they both be right? There's a law of logic known as the law of the excluded middle. Both of these cannot possibly be right, and yet they all are members who claim, I'm right with God. Come be a part of our organization, and we will assist you on your journey to everlasting glory. The Lord would have us call all of that into question. Paul said, you must be of the same judgment, of the same mind, 
We need to appreciate that in so many of these ways, they proclaim different plans of salvation. Now let's be frank about it. One organization says, here is the plan of salvation. Another one says, here is my airplane, and they're different. So if I subscribe to one, then in the eyes of the other, I'm lost. Question, who's going to decide this? May we quickly assert, what men may say wholly doesn't matter. What does this book say? We might note many of them claim, of course, to be following this pattern, but it appears that they really aren't. Perhaps another passage. We've highlighted so far the unity that should characterize those interested in things of God. In Romans 15 verse 6, Paul also made note on that occasion, didn't he? That you speak with the same mind and in the same mouth and bring glory unto God. It should be the case, just as that for which the Lord prayed, that a unity would characterize the followers of the Lord that they'd proclaim the same plan of salvation, they'd lift high and respect the same Bible, they would in fact honor the same Lord by following His Word, and that they would worship in the correctly described and proper way according to that same Word. But today, 33,000 and more denominations that do different things, teach different things, practice different things, worship in different ways, we've got a confusing problem. I would submit to us that the Bible helps to solve our confusing problem. And it helps to solve it by the following observation. I put it in bold-faced type. This isn't simply my conclusion. It's the statement of Holy Scripture, isn't it? How many churches are there? One. There's only one. We perhaps can look at some of these passages. Let's start in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4. We find on that occasion the following declarative statement. Paul simply and emphatically says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Here was the church at Ephesus, and to them the very first element of the number of seven, he says, there is one body. As you and I appreciate the matter of biology, maybe that doesn't sound shocking. After all, there's one physical body attached to one head, at least in the normal scheme of things. And here Paul affirms there indeed is one body. Question is, to what body does Paul refer? Three chapters earlier we have the answer. In Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23, last two verses of that chapter, Paul made this statement, "...and hath put all things under his feet." and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. And thus, using that grammatical structure in which one object is immediately identified, Paul says the church is the body, and then three chapters later he says there's one body. And so by the law of transitivity, there's one church. We thus have the inspired answer on this point. One church... It's not as if there's 33,830. It's not as if there's 40,000. It's not as if there's some arbitrary number. There's one. O-N-E. You can also see in some additional passages in Colossians 1. That's actually cut off on the right as I now note it. That should be Colossians 1 verse 18. In that passage, Paul again writing to the church of Colossae said... 
speaking of Christ, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Christ is the head over one body, that church. And thus, when you and I now give answer or thought to the fact of how many churches are there, we're quick now to be able to say there is but one. There is this one church that immediately leads to this conclusion. If we have seen this vast number of denominations, and yet the Scriptures have affirmed that there is one correct one, or there is one church, perhaps I should say, that obviously leads to this conclusion. Not all religious organizations are correct, despite their earnestness and their claims, and perhaps even their sincerity. Not all of them are correct, for there is one church. Thankfully, the New Testament helps us appreciate that fact in passages like these. In 2 John, which is a one-chapter book, but beginning in verse number 9, we find there the inspired apostle John as he addresses exactly this fact when he says, "...whosoever abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath neither the Father nor the Son." So there is, in essence, a set boundary, a fence, if you please. And those who abide within it follow it completely, and obey it thoroughly. They are the ones that have the Father and the Son, but those who do not, they have neither the Father nor the Son. In Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Jesus gave us a graphic rendition of the day of judgment when He said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Here is a clear assertion that there will be those on judgment who felt as if they were correct. Lord, we've cast out demons in your name. Lord, we've prophesied in your name. That means we've preached and we've preached. But the Lord's going to say, I never knew you. That's clear evidence, isn't it? That, despite the earnestness and the honesty that they may feel, and despite the sincerity that may characterize their efforts, they were mistaken. They were in the wrong. And they were incorrect. They were parts of organizations the Lord didn't recognize. Speaking of recognition, maybe that takes us to Matthew 15 verse 13. We have a very interesting presentation on that occasion. In fact, it's stated in language like this. We may ask the question and affirm it like the Lord did. Every plant which my heavenly Father planteth not shall be rooted up and destroyed. As the Lord spoke about plants, He wasn't talking about okra plants, and He wasn't talking about watermelon plants. He was talking about religious organizations unauthorized by and unknown to the God of heaven. Every plant which my heavenly Father planteth not shall be rooted up and destroyed. It is thus a serious matter, and may we thus bring back to the opening comment we made. Does it matter which organization one's a part of? Or as that gentleman said, is the church irrelevant? We may kindly now object. Our gentleman was incorrect. The church is relevant. In fact, your eternal salvation in mind depends on being a part of the organization, the one of which we've read 
that in fact does have the blessed approval of the God of heaven. And furthermore, might we notice in Romans 16, 17, even Paul called those of that day to mark and avoid some who in fact were given to doctrines that were again unknown to the God of heaven. As you and I appreciate those matters today, it's a significant thing then, isn't it, to identify the church of our Lord. We've raised already on many occasions this number, 33,830, as recognized by the World Christian Encyclopedia. It now behooves us to know that Christ said there's one, Peter said there's one, Paul said there's one, the inspired writers from heaven declared that there is one. How does one identify that one? Obviously, that person who made his way to work and passed all these various buildings that have names written on the exterior, he now is in need of finding the one spoken of in the New Testament. He's in need of finding that one. And may we begin now to help ourselves clarify and identify. And we shall do in succeeding lessons some additional identification. But for today, may we notice that we'll focus our efforts upon this the date of the establishment of that one body, the one church spoken of in the New Testament. Might I point out to us, this could in fact be a very clear distinguishing and identifying mark, couldn't it? I believe that would help us in fact make sense toward that point. We may picture it like this. All these various organizations that this gentleman has passed, if he could in fact research and find this one was started in this year and this one was begun in that year and this one had its origin in a certain year, if he knew when that one body was established, what year it had its origination, what year it in fact began, that could thus eliminate all that did not have their origin in that year that accords to the one body. I wonder, does the Bible tell us what year, what, what particular time frame the church began? Let's in fact use this slide to help us answer that question. First of all, the body to which we refer is of course that special church purchased with the blood of Christ. And that takes us to Acts 20 verse 28 in which we read the following. As Paul addressed the elders of the church in Ephesus, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. It is thus a self-evident truth, isn't it? That this organization, this church to which we refer, could not have begun then before the Lord shed His blood, because His blood purchased it. That means the church was not established in the Old Testament era. It means it wasn't even established in the lifetime of Christ. Despite the fact there are many in our world who think otherwise. There are those who think John the Baptist established it. That cannot be. For in fact, remember, John died before the Lord did. In light of all of that, may we know, Jesus Himself taught, didn't He? In Matthew 4 verse 17. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's the same preaching that John the Baptist taught in Matthew 3 verse 2. The Lord thus said, the church is at hand. It isn't here yet. The kingdom isn't established yet, but it's at hand. In Matthew 6 verse 10, Jesus again in that prayer we often call the model prayer said, Thy kingdom come. 
The kingdom had not yet been established on that occasion. But again, apparently it was close. Later in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, as He spoke and addressed the comment that Peter had made, He said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. May we never forget the Lord used a future tense verb, I will build. The church had not yet been established by the time of Matthew 16, 18. Perhaps at this point, though, we can draw that part to a conclusion because as we go to Mark 9, verse 1, we have a very important passage as it relates to this application. Jesus said as He preached on that occasion, which frankly was but a few days prior to His own crucifixion, He said, There be some of them standing here which shall not taste of death till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power. And He thus affirmed it would be within the lifetime of those auditors on that occasion. In your lifetime, He said to, the, to those people, the kingdom will be established. Isn't it lovely then to appreciate the church was thus not to be established 1,500 years later, 1,800 years later, for that would mean some awfully old people walking around on this planet if it was to be within the lifetime of those of whom He addressed that day. As we come to Acts chapters 1 and 2, we find that power to which the Lord promised came to being in Acts the second chapter. Those apostles, in fact, were filled with the Holy Spirit, overcome with power, Acts 2, verses 3 and 4. And we find in that very chapter the church was established. Isn't it amazing to notice? Prior to that chapter, again, the church hadn't been established. But in that very chapter, verse number 47 reads like this, And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. They couldn't have been added to something if it didn't exist. The church was in existence, thanks be unto God. And in Colossians 1 verse 13, he even wrote that even the Colossians had been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It thus is to be noted the church was in fact established and the fulfillment is now appreciated in grandness. Perhaps finally, I wonder what date that took place on. What's the date of Acts the second chapter? Was that 1500 A.D.? Was it 1536 A.D.? Was it 1607 A.D.? Was it 1739 A.D.? Which, by the way, are the dates of origination of many religious organizations. But the answer in all instances is no. We recognize that our Lord, of course, had been crucified several days before... And by the nature of the word Pentecost, we realize that some 50 days had passed since the Sabbath that accorded with the nature of the keeping of the Passover. And so all we have to do is recognize this, of course, was in that very same year that our Savior was crucified. The church began, didn't it, on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of our Lord. As such, that's the birthday of the church. What year was it? A.D. 30. Thus, there is the point that you and I can use to help identify organizations. Perhaps here, but three examples. As that person passed by a number of bodies, and may we notice we are not interested in, in insulting any. We're only noting what is absolute fact. The Lutheran organization began with the efforts of Martin Luther, and we know when he lived. 
the church began in 1520 A.D. Though I'm certainly no genius, I can see that 1520 A.D. is not the same as 30 A.D. And yet we appreciate the church of our Lord began in 30 A.D. And hence this cannot be. It simply cannot be the church for which our Savior died. Perhaps another. The Baptist organization began with the efforts of Roger Williams in 1607 A.D., period. That's a known fact. Again, it's easy to appreciate that's not 30 A.D. And no massaging of numbers will ever make it so. Finally, we notice the Jehovah's Witnesses began with the efforts of Judge Rutherford and others in 1872 A.D. That again is not 30 A.D. One could go one by one down the list and simply note from the facts of history, where did these organizations begin and in what year did they commence? If it wasn't 30 A.D., that's an immediate X. It cannot be the church of our Savior. How thankful we can be that the church of Christ is listed in Romans 16, 16. The churches of Christ salute you, and the church of which you and I are a member is a church known in New Testament times, and it is the congregation, the church, that our Savior's blood was shed to establish, and that you and I are privileged by all nature of eternity to be a part of it. May we never look lightly upon the church. May we not look upon it as like another organization that's a social club, for it isn't. It's not a place just to have coffee and donuts, to have a playground or a gymnasium. It's not a place, in fact, to make it into any organization other than the way that God demanded it. Today, as we've given thought to the glory that is to be found in the church, maybe we can close our lesson in words like this. The church is fundamentally important. The thoughts and the perspectives of men may attempt to alter that, but they cannot do so. It's vital, it's essential, it's necessary, it's fundamental. And without being a part of that organization and body, there is no salvation to be found. In fact, you and I have looked carefully at the date of establishment of the church, that body of Christ in the New Testament, and have found that it was the first Pentecost following our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection. If today you're not a member of that body, why not? Why do you delay? Jesus shed His blood for you to be saved, for me to be saved, for all of us to have the opportunity. That opportunity in terms of what heaven has done that part of that plan is now completed. The remainder of it is left for you. Will you obey or will you not? Will you rebel against that statement of the Lord today and leave Him at bay? If you do, you are risking, of course, all eternity. If you know that you are a sinner and you know that Christ died for you and you know the plan of salvation, then you know enough to become a member of the Lord's body today. If we could assist you in that effort we'd be more than happy and honored to do so. Jesus, in fact, placed these as the entrance matters. You must believe Him to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If today you have done that, but you are not faithful any longer, others know about your dereliction of duty, the actions and things you've done that have brought disgrace upon the church, don't let that state of affairs continue. Come back to your first love. If today we could be of assistance in praying on your behalf, 
we'd be honored as well to do that. If either of these is a need of your life this very day, why not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?